Sweet. Uh, welcome again to Christ Church Milwaukee. Um, I'll say again, my name is Danny Heinemann. I'm not on the pastoral staff here, but I am um, a pastor, and I'm a pastor in this presbytery um, over in Madison. Is, is Nick here? Hey, there's Nick. Um, Nick and I are colleagues. Nick and I have the same job at different schools. Um, and uh, the, what that means is that whether you knew it or not, I am your missionary over in Madison. And uh, you all support me in my work over there. And uh, I just want to let you know that I'm very grateful for it. And any time I get to come over here, over to the big city, um, I really enjoy seeing your faces and listening to your voices sing and uh, sharing time with you. And so uh, I'm grateful to be with you this morning. Uh, we are going to be looking at uh, Exodus chapter 20, just three verses, and uh, verses 1 and 2, and then verse 14. And um, just, a, just a caveat for, this is kind of a strange text for someone to just like drop in from out of nowhere to preach on, preaching on adultery. Um, that might, I mean, if it's weird, that's, you can blame that on me. I'm preaching at another church tonight, and I'm preaching on the same text, and I didn't really think about it. And I was on my, actually, I was going to bed last night, and I was, I was talking to my wife, and I was like, I think maybe I should preach a different sermon tomorrow. I think it's just going to be weird. And she was like, are the bulletins already printed? I was like, yeah, they are. And she'd be like, she was like, it'd be weirder if you did that. So just, just go ahead and preach your sermon. And I think it actually, it is a strange text to, um, to kind of offer up a sermon without context, but I think it will be profitable. And it's, you know, it's part of God's word, so it should be, right? Um, but uh, the way that we are talking through in uh, my community back in Madison, the way that we're talking about, we're talking about the law of God, uh, this fall, and the way that we're talking about it is uh, what the Bi- we're trying to help people understand how the Bible thinks about the law of God, which is that it is a means or a way to freedom, which is not the way we normally think about laws or restrictions, right? Restrictions are things that bind us in and they keep us from our freedom, um, but what we are wanting to communicate and explore together um, over in Madison and then here together this morning is that um, there's some, there are some restrictions that curtail our freedom, But the restrictions that God gives us, because he is our maker, and he knows us better than we know ourselves, are actually a way for us to enter into a life of freedom uh, properly conceived. We're God's handiwork. We're made uh, to operate according to a specific design, right? It's how God made us. And so these ten words, the ten words, these ten commandments, kind of, they not kind of, they do articulate God's vision, uh, or at least in, they, they offer glimpses into God's vision for what it is to live a truly human life. Um, and the seventh commandment we're looking at has to do with fidelity or faithfulness. So I'm going to read the text, I'll pray, and then we'll get started. Exodus 20, verses 1, 2, and 14. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not commit adultery. The word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that is preached to us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning, um, for this space to be in. It's my first time being in here. It's very beautiful. Uh, For the sunshine this morning, um, for uh, giving us a place to gather together as your people, uh, living stones that come together to make a dwelling place for the Lord. God, we pray that you would be with us as you've said you would. Um, we, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts, um, cut, cutting them, cutting away, cutting out the, the sickness that is in us uh, with your word that is 
sharper than a double-edged sword. And God, I pray that as I preach, um, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. And I pray for all these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so I try not to talk too much about it, and I, this is one of those things where I don't really know how much I actually talk about. It's kind of like talking about my kids in sermons. Um, I talk about them a lot. Apparently, I'm not talking about them this morning. But before I was a pastor, feels like in a, in a, in a different life, um, I played football. And one of the things that you learn um, as you kind of go up, as you advance in, um, I don't know, in football, as you play at higher and higher levels, is uh, football is a, is a communitarian sort of game. And one of the things that is very true about this game, and one of the things that my offensive coordinator in college, my first one, uh, would like to say, especially um, to the receivers, of which I was one, he was always trying to get us to block more than we wanted to, you know what I'm saying? Anybody? Um, Anyway, he would say, first and ten, a play on first and ten where ten guys do the right thing results in second and fifteen. Does that make sense? So first and ten, ten guys do the right thing, one guy does the wrong thing, it's a loss of five yards. And his point is that football is such a complicated game, it's a game that requires a a coordinated effort on all parts of the players on the field, all parts of the society uh, that's trying to move towards a goal. And if one person doesn't do it, that actually affects the outcome of the rest of the team. Does that make sense? Well, these ten words on freedom in, the, in Exodus chapter 20, uh, the Ten Commandments, they, they work in a similar way. And one of the things that um, ethics or law in the eyes of God is that it is the way that we often think about it in our culture for lots of reasons is that they have to do with our internally. Like, how am I keeping the law of God? And if I don't keep it, then it makes me guilty before God. That's all true. But we don't think a lot about how it affects people around us. Is that fair? It's fair for me. The way these rules work, you have to understand that they were offered to a context and to a people. And so these ten words on freedom, they reframe how we live our lives. And it's very much how we live our lives together as a community. And it's like football in that it forces you to think about how your actions affect uh, one another. And before we get started uh, started talking about sex, I just want to say as a preface that everybody that walked into this room this morning, including me, is a sexual sinner. So if you are coming into this room and you're like getting really nervous and feeling really exposed or whatever, I just want to tell you that this is a, this is a thing that we are all dealing with together. So we're going to talk about the law of God as it pertains to sex a little bit, not exclusively, uh, together. Does that make sense? We're doing this together. This is a thing that we all need to listen to and to learn from. The first thing we understand is that uh, there is a freedom in sexual fidelity. That's what God is trying to get us to say. God is interested in sex. God made it. He made it good. He made us to enjoy it as a good. And he cares enough about it to say something specific about it in his ten words, in his first words to the people of God encamped at Mount Mount Sinai. He could have said a lot of other things, but of all the things he could have said when he speaks to his people at this significant moment in their history, remember the people of God had just been miraculously swept out of slavery in Egypt. Of all the things he could have said when he speaks to his people, one of the things he includes is a word about sex. And I just want to remind you what these words are, these Ten Commandments are. They are a set of laws. But in the way that that law functions in the Bible, and the way that law used to function in our society, is a little bit different than the way we think about it now. Okay, So there's a difference in the Bible, there's a gap, you could say, between law 
as like a codified stated rule about behavior and then like ethical perfection, right? So you can, um, you can not be an adulterer, you know, formally speaking, and you can still be a sexual sinner. Does that make sense, right? So there's a gap between uh, law and ethical perfection. Law forms the floor, the baseline, you could say, below which you cannot go and remain a good standing, a member in good standing in the community. It's the minimum. It's not the maximum. Now, with this one in particular, if you are familiar with the Bible, Jesus actually does articulate the maximum in the New Testament. And he says, anybody that's ever looked on another person with lustful eyes is guilty of adultery in their heart. And that's probably most of us in this room. So two things about sex here. Like why God mentions this in his ten words to his people. The first thing is this. The law of God here, among other things, is intended to function as a buffer. It's a buffer against evil for the sake of the community or the society, right? Like sexual fidelity in the eyes of the Bible is a gift to the community. In other words, it's better in general for spouses not to cheat on each other. Uh, It's better for the health of their relationship. It's better for the sake of their children. It's better for the sake of community stability. Um, You probably don't need statistical verification of this, but you can look it up. Like, it's better for children to grow up in homes in terms of outcomes. Uh, And you can, I don't know, you can caveat this all you want, but it's better for children to grow up in homes with two healthy parents who are faithful to each other. Stable families correlate to stable communities, and stable communities promote flourishing. You see how this works together? And so there's a very easy line to draw from this command to freedom. Sexual fidelity to your spouse, which is a restriction on the way that you exercise your own sexuality. It's actually a gift. It's a command that God gives to us as a gift. It's for your good, it's for the good of your family, and for the good of your community. But it is a restraint, right? Right? It's a restraint. It's a restraint, though, that promotes freedom. Now, that actually runs against the grain. If you haven't thought much about freedom, it, it might feel like this is, a, these are, this is a contradiction in terms, right? A restraint is, is the opposite of freedom, right? It runs against the grain of how we talk about freedom. Uh, if you have, um, unless you've been hiding under a rock, and even if you have been hiding under a rock, you probably know that there's, there's a big election this week, right? In an election, big election cycles, there's, um, there's always a lot of talk about freedom, right? Protecting freedom, achieving freedom, all those kinds of things. This is the land of the free, which is to say this is the land of uh, freedom from restraint. It's, it's part and parcel to like the highest values of, of our society. And both parties do this, right? Uh, you can't take my guns or make me wear a mask you can't tell me what to do with my body, right? This is on both sides. It's not a partisan value. Now, this is, one of, this is like a point of, of, of political tension in, in our life together that, that has been emerging for some time, and it's this idea that freedom is the absence of restraint, which we only actually apply selectively, right? We still have laws. Uh, and, the, and the reason that it's a tension is because this actually doesn't work, uh, it doesn't take long to realize that this conception of freedom is a fiction. We're not free. We're not, like, radically free. We're not free from the laws of physics. We're not free from who our parents are. Like, we didn't choose any of these kinds of things, right? Even here in the land of the free, we still have laws, and we still have expectations for what sort of behavior is appropriate. 
So much of who we are is actually the result of like external restrictions that we had nothing to do with. And so freedom, properly conceived, and certainly in the eyes of the Bible, is much less about the absence of restraint than the presence of the right restraints. A screwdriver is an appalling canoe paddle. Right? A lawnmower is a terrible mattress. A car is a terrible spaceship. Why? Because that's not what it's for. It'll be frustrated in all its efforts. You will be frustrated in all your efforts if you're trying to use a screwdriver for something other than what it was designed for. So the question then for achieving freedom, how are we going to be a free people? How does God offer us freedom, call us into freedom? It's not about throwing off every external restraint that we have, but putting on the ones that put us in line with our design. And one of God's designs for us is for sex to function in the context of a specific relationship. It's actually a covenantal relationship. He calls it a covenant, Ezekiel 16 and Malachi 2. And he does this in part because sex demands this extreme level of vulnerability before another person. You can't hide. And it's therefore an act with the capacity, on the one hand, for the deepest form of human intimacy to be fully known and fully loved by another. And it's also an act with the capacity for the deepest form of human violence. And statistically, I don't, know you, I don't know you, but statistically, there are people in this room who know that violence. Now here, specifically regarding adultery, it's because sexual infidelity against your spouse, adultery, a married man or a married woman having sex with someone other than their husband or wife, it hurts not only the parties involved, like those two people, but it hurts the community of which they're a part, their family, their city, even their country. And so the point is this. For Christians, you're not the end of your own sexuality. It's not just about you. And so there's a pointed question that we all have to be asking ourselves, myself included, is how do you, do you consider your own, like, sexuality? Or even the sins that you're tempted to commit? Do you consider that they're not only a sin against God, but they're a sin against your neighbor? Or... Do you ever think about how your fidelity to your spouse, if you're here and you're married, actually promotes the welfare of your neighbor? Now, this command is, of course, specifically about adultery, okay? Um, but as is the case with all the commands in, the, in God's law, this is an expression of a much broader vision of God for, uh, for life together, for sex, and, and for faithfulness. And so there is a freedom, too, in in spiritual fidelity, which is the way this this motif is actually used all throughout the Bible, and we're going to look at that a little bit. But God's interest in sex isn't just abstract or hypothetical. It's very personal. He he speaks in this seventh word about how all of his people are to understand and participate or not participate in this good gift of sex. But it's not just about that. It's about faithfulness to God as well. So you see, in, in Christian theology, marriage... And, or or the, even the sexual union within marriage um, is a sign. It's a sign. Signa, right? That's, the, that's the, the word the old theologians used to say. It's a sign that's supposed to teach us and everybody around us about the unbreakable bond and intimate love and, and even mystical union of God to his people. 
Some Christian traditions, depending on which ones that uh, you grew up with, if you grew up in the church, some Christian traditions even call marriage a sacrament. And, and in, in a sense, that's actually for a good reason. We would call it sacramental. It's a sign that teaches us, and here's why. It's because it sums up that relationship, this like covenantal bond, this intimate love, this mystical union. Marriage teaches us about that truth, and because it sums up the whole story that the Bible tells us about the relationship between God and man. So here's the story the Bible tells. If you're familiar with the Bible, you'll, 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 you'll know it. It begins with this intimate union. This is the story Christians tell about the world. Everything began with this in- intimate union in, the, in God. We call it the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They, they dwelled together in perfect love and unity. And out of that love and unity, they decided to make something new. They created out of nothing. And that creative act was a place and a people to live in that place where they could dwell together with each other and with God in perfect unity. They could share in that love and unity with one another and with God. But, as you know, if you know the Bible or if you just know the world around you, that covenant was broken in the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And that sin was actually a betrayal of a covenant. It was a rejection of the love of God. Sin is, in the eyes of the Bible, a spiritual adultery. So it's no accident that the first effect um, of the introduction of sin into the world was what? They hid themselves. They hid their nakedness. They were ashamed. But God, because he loves us, loved us then and he loves us still, he went to work. Beginning with a promise that day, he said that he would one day overcome this betrayal and he would restore this union. And this restoration began with the call of a man named Abram who became Abraham. And he gave him a promise to gather a people. This promise uh, was, was prefigured and demonstrated in the deliverance of Egypt, or of, of Israel from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt, in the Exodus. And then our betrayal, the betrayal of our first parents, our own betrayal, probably even this morning, it was reenacted in the tragic story of God's people in the Promised Land, beginning with this golden calf at Sinai. Right after this event, in this text, Moses goes up to the mountain and the people fall away. And continuing with the idolatry of so many kings of Israel, and it culminated in another, ex- another exile from the place that God gave them. Do you see how this story is repeating? And yet God, who's the faithful spouse, pursued us in our infidelity, restored us to the land we had lost, and he spoke to our ancestors by the prophets that our infidelity, that our spiritual promiscuity, which is a form of slavery, to that which will never satisfy, that it would not be the final word. That God himself would come to unite man and God as the faithful one. And that's why it's so important. And this is why the early theologians in the church spent so much time wrestling with how to talk about who Jesus was as the person in whom God and man are held together. In a person. And ever since, in the Bible, in Christian theology, the church is described as the betrothed bride of Christ. The unfaithful spouse restored to fidelity, united truly now to her groom, but awaiting the consummation of that marriage in heaven and earth. This is why the Bible ends with a wedding feast. 
A bride prepared for her husband made spotless. Not because of anything that's in her, but because her groom has made her so. And I want you to hear this. If you are a Christian, that is who you are. That is who you are. So I want to say two things. As I said at the beginning, I know there are a lot of people in this room who carry deep wounds with them as he walked up the stairs out of the wind and sat down at these tables. Deep, even sexual wounds. Wounds that you inflicted on other people and wounds that you received. And to you, I want you to hear this. To be saved by Jesus is to receive an identity. It's a lot of things. But at minimum, it's to receive an identity as his beloved bride. And that is what is most true about you. Not what you've done. Not what's been done to you. It's not to say that your sexual past doesn't matter. It's not to say that the pain you've suffered as a victim isn't real. It's real. It's not to say that the pain you've inflicted on others is okay. It's not okay. But the most fundamental thing about you is that you are known and that you are loved. And you will be embraced by Christ. Your groom in the last day in an embrace that theologians aptly call the consummation. That is what is true about you. And I want you to hear that. Now the second thing I want to say is more about the spiritual infidelity that we're tempted to. And we all, I've already said, you know, there's an election happening this week. And I can't pretend to offer like a full theology of, you know, Christianity and politics in a sermon, even though it'd be fun for me. But I want you to hear this. A friend of mine put it well last week. I was listening to him preach, and this is how he put it. When you walk into the voting booth this week, if you haven't already voted, you go this week knowing exactly who you are, if you're a Christian. You have deep roots in the ancient faith of God's people. You're not going into the polls to express an identity, to express one. You are going into the polls with an identity, and that is the previously adulterous, now redeemed, beloved bride of God in Christ. And you are to take up your vocation as that people who act, even politically, for the sake of the welfare of the community. For blessing the community for the sake of its welfare. But even still, the waters are murky. It's hard to know what is right and what is wrong, especially as voting people, right? Nothing seems clean, nothing seems pure. And even in our own sexuality, we struggle. We struggle to live up to the heights of what God has called us to. We struggle with the wounds that people have inflicted upon us. We struggle with shame over the wounds we've inflicted upon other people. But I want you to remember that God loves you. And as we wait for this thing that we call the consummation, for God to come, for heaven to come down to earth, for the dead to be raised, 
for us to be presented as pure and blameless people before our God. We look and we listen and we hope for what is promised and we put the words of Solomon that we already read this morning on our lips as we wait the coming of our highest love. The voice, I'm just going to read it to you. I want you to hear it. The voice of my beloved. This is of God. Behold, he comes. Leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills, my beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, he says to you, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear in the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, the vines are in bloom, they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock and the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. This is how God speaks to you. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us. I don't know what that's about. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards. For our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is is mine, and I am his. Amen. Let us pray. God, thank you so much for this word to us, for being kind enough to speak to us and show us the way to be free. And we thank you so much for loving us in our infidelity. For making we who are broken and prone to wander, Lord, for you make, that you would make us pure and that you would take us in as your spotless bride. God, I pray that you would help us to believe this because sometimes it even feels trite. But God, this is true. This is what you've said about us and this is what you've said you will do. And so we pray that you would help us to believe it. And we pray for all these things In your son's name, amen.